1: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thanks very much for joining us today. I just got off the Skype phone between Germany and Italy, actually, with Craig Martin to talk about his new book, Subverting Aristotle, Religion, History, and Philosophy in Early Modern Science. This came out with Johns Hopkins University Press in 2014. Now, one of the really important things that this book does is it takes a transition that many of us who work in the field of early modern history, early modern studies, early modern science in particular, take for granted. And that is a turn away from Aristotle and works of Aristotelianism that comes with the turn to the new sciences in early modernity. And it locates that turn within a very, very rich, attentive, intimate, and detailed account of writings about religion specifically and concerns with the writings of Aristotle and Aristotelianism in terms of religion in particular from the 11th through the 18th centuries. So it's a story that offers an important revision of how we think about uh, the place of Aristotelianism in early modern Science, the place of history, in and historical methodologies in reframing um, approaches toward Aristotle and Aristotelianism, and it's based on just a staggering archive of primary sources and a really like amazing familiarity with and intimacy with those sources um, that just comes off of every single page of this work. So this is a work that, as you'll hear me talk about in a bit, doesn't just tell us, here is how it was. It really shows us, it brings us into the paths of argumentation and holds our hands and guides us through the kinds of transitions in thinking with and thinking about Aristotle and religion that the book um, is arguing about. So it's a really rich study. It's a very intricately woven study, but also a pleasure to read. It was a pleasure to talk with Craig Martin about it. So I hope you have a chance to take a look at the book, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Thanks for listening. I'm here today to talk with Craig Martin about his new book, Subverting Aristotle, Religion, History, and Philosophy in Early Modern Science. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Craig, and thanks very much both for making time to talk with me today and for navigating the time difference and the geographical difference. I'm really delighted to be talking with you, and I'm really delighted to have had a chance to read the book. So thank you.
0: (laughs) Thank you for inviting me. Of
1: course. So Craig, could you start us off by saying just a little bit about your background and specifically, how did you come to start working on the history of science in general and the history of early the modern science more specifically?
0: <laughs> My when I was an undergraduate, I, I studied classics and I became interested in ancient philosophy, particularly natural philosophy. And um, I wanted to study Aristotle, um, Aristotle in antiquity uh, originally. And when I went into graduate school, and when I when I started doing my studies in graduate school, uh, I, um, I, yeah, um, I I became interested. I found out there's all of these Renaissance reception and commentary. On Aristotle, and that very few people had read them recently, and to me that was very interesting. And there was a sense I was discovering uh, new text and, and new authors. And so, with that, I changed my my field from from ancient science to to Renaissance and early early modern modern science. Um, so that's that's generally how I got interested in um, in, in Renaissance um, natural philosophy and, and the history. Of of science.
1: So this isn't your first monograph, but it sounds like your interest in Aristotelianism and Aristotle goes back to your graduate school days.
0: Um, yeah, precisely. I, I studied, um, um, originally I, I wanted to study, I wanted to write my dissertation about Aristotle's meteorology, but um, then I found all of these um, works on, uh, on the Renaissance that, Interpreted as meteorology, and I thought those were more interesting. Um, perhaps offered more room uh, for for interpretation than, than Aristotle. So, my, my first book is is about Renaissance meteorology, which is largely um, interpretations of Aristotle's meteorology that, of course, changed uh, as a result of the of of the new context of of the sixteenth and fifteenth uh, centuries, um, and it's really. It's really from that book that I became interested in um, in this question about religion and history um, relating to early modern Aristotelianism. The, one of the things that I came across were these religious interpretations of, of meteorology in the 16th century and and one of the tensions with meteorology is is that the weather is is chaotic and, and irregular um, and so that made some some thinkers wonder about how that related to to God's providence or God's planning of, of the world if, if weather is so irregular and also potentially dangerous um how is it possible that uh, that god has planned such a perfect world for us um and so in the 16th century when there was protestants um, um Engaging with Catholic thought, this became a, a, a particularly um, heated discussion surrounding meteorology, and that that opened um, up this sort of larger issue of having to do with uh, with, with Aristotle and whether Aristotle could be reconciled with Christianity uh, as a whole.
1: Great. So the book itself that we're talking about today actually looks very carefully precisely at this question and uh, specifically at the ways that Renaissance humanism sort of midway through the story informed religious arguments, religious arguments specifically, that's an important part of this, for and against Aristotelianism from the 11th through the 18th centuries. So it's a really tremendous scope that you've taken on, but you've done this in really intricate detail that lets the reader follow the course of your argument by showing us, not just telling us, the ways that um, different elements of this Line, these different lines of argumentation informed each other and ultimately created the circumstance we get at the end of the story. So we'll get there in time. Um, <laughs> that, um, this, is, you know, this is such an ambitious project, and it's a project that uh, seems to have involved such sort of deep and sustained and really wide work with a range of primary sources. I'd love to hear a little bit about. Now that you've talked a little bit about how you came to be interested in Aristotle and the question of religion, how did you come to decide to structure this book in the way that you did and sort of decide on the scope? In other words, how did you come to decide to make the book into this particular kind of object?
0: Yeah, well, I, I because. I became interested in, in particularly in uh, the the fortune of a particular thinker named Averroes. It's a Latinized name of of Ibn Rushd, who was um, he, he lived in the in the twelfth century in Andalusia, um, and was a Musl- and was a Muslim. And he wrote commentaries on Aristotle, and these commentaries were very, very influential throughout the Middle Ages and Renaissance. And I became interested in looking at his uh, fortune and his reception. And I came to realize that to understand it, one had to look at all of Aristotelianism, that it wasn't a, sep- a, separate, a separate question. So, so initially, when I, when I began to look at this, I just started to look at what did people think about Averroes? And then I stepped back and said, well, how did this relate to what people were saying about Ar- Aristotle? And, and so that, that, that guided the initial stages of, of, my, re- of my research, which I then uh, eventually expanded.
1: Awesome. So that actually also um, really nicely informs the centrality of um, Averroes as he recurs throughout the text. So great. I'm glad to hear that. (laughs)
0: So
1: Actually, um, what I'll do to get us to Averroes is first just take a couple of minutes to set the stage for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book. And then we'll kind of go into um, actually talking about Averroes and others. Okay, so to set the stage for listeners, for a really long time, Aristotelian thought was embraced by Christian culture. And only in the 17th century did Aristotle kind of cease to be seen as a sort of source of religious truth. Okay, so here's the background. Now, this is roughly the same time that he stops being treated as as an authority in natural philosophy. And the book argues that this was not coincidental, that these are actually related. So it's a kind of revisionist approach to how we've understood Aristotelianism in the context of the rise of the new sciences um, in early modern Europe. And it's revisionist in this particular way. So I'll just lay this out and then we'll um, open it up. So historians have, t- have typically, and, and you lay this out really nicely in the introduction, they've typically pointed to two major reasons for the decline of the influence of Aristotle by the 17th century. One is um, sort of a, a reason that's about new ideas in new sort of cosmological, mechanical, and other kinds of theories that undermined Aristotelian metaphysics. And the other explanation tends to be about the new kinds of collective inquiry and coming with social institutions of the new sciences in early modernity that replace the more kind of um, individual methods of Aristotelian inquiry. So the book's going to argue that these are, while helpful, only part of the story and that a really significant factor in this transformation was played by religion. So the rest of the chapters of the book are going to lay this out and show us, as I've uh, just mentioned, how this happened and why this happened. Okay. And we'll get to some of the details. I hope, is that okay? Is that
0: okay? <laughs> that's a, that's a That's a great summary of the book. <laughs> thank okay. you.
1: Okay. No, that, well, that's good. It's mostly based on your own uh, clarity in the introduction. So thank you for that clarity. Okay. So the book takes us in, in the first chapter to the importance of one of the figures who you just mentioned, and this is Averroes. Now, this was, Averroes was one Arabic or Arabic language-using writer um, who was deeply engaged with Aristotelian thought. He wrote commentaries on a large part of the Aristotelian corpus. And beginning in the 13th century, university professors were really relying on him and on um, sort of Latin translations of him in their engagement with Aristotle. Okay, so um, let's kind of jump off from here. Can you, since this is such an important part of how you came to the story and also how the story is instantiated in the book, can you talk about sort of what are some of the most important aspects of the way of interpreted Aristotle? For our purposes and understanding the kinds of arguments that are going to follow, mm-hmm.
0: and so uh, Averroes was writing in a in a in a context uh, having to do with, with larger Islamic thought, and he interpreted Aristotle in direct opposition to his rival, uh, who was called I- Ibn Sina, which is changed in, in Latin to a- Avicenna. And Avicenna lived um, a couple generations before him, and what he wanted to do was try to reconcile Aristotelian thought with Platonic thought and with Islamic theology. So, a, a, kind of a big project of reconciliation to make Plato, Aristotle fit with uh, with with religion. And Averroes took a different approach, and he he argued that this was a bad interpretation of not just aristotle but also nature and that investigations into nature should be distinct from the theological consider considerations so uh, so averroes thought uh, that this was a was a project that uh, that Aristotle himself embarked on, and that Aristotle was the greatest thinker of all time, um, that he was almost divine in his ability to understand nature. So Averroes wrote these commentaries uh, as a way of understanding Aristotle, distinct from Plato, distinct from religion, and he thought that this would, uh, would give him a, the best understanding of nature that, that, was, that, was, po- that was possible. So he, he wanted to have a very precise and accurate understanding of Aristotle, distinct from theology and distinct from, from Platonism.
1: Great. Now, his interpretation of Aristotle's works actually <laughs> shaped the way Aristotle was appropriated among medieval Latin authors. So what are some of the most important ways that
0: that was true? Uh so so he wrote these commentaries on Aristotle that were translated the same time Aristotle was translated into Latin. And so Aristotle section they are very complicated. They're difficult to understand. So that these were the, some of the best tools that uh, that Christian writers had in the in the in the Middle Ages for understand understanding Aristotle. And so they, they used these works to really with the initial understandings of, of Aristotle. Now there were um, there were certain issues that um, that were hard to understand for Aristotle and perhaps hard to understand for. for Averroes as well. One had to do with the uh, creation of the world. That Averroes interpreted Aristotle in a literal manner as believing that the, that the world, the universe, uh, was not created in time, that the universe has always existed and always will exist. Um, so this was he thought was key to understanding Aristotle's thought another very important issue for Averroes had to do with the interpretation of Aristotle's view of the soul Averroes put forth an interpretation that um, there's one part of the of the soul called the intellect, um, the, the rational part of the soul and Averroes believed that, that there was only one of the these intellects that existed, and that all all humans access the same intellect. So sometimes this is called, this is what Leibniz called the unicity of the intellect, that there's only one intellect, and that we all we all share it. Um, and this became a doctrine that for for many people for centuries associated with Averroes Her- more more than anything else. but Averroes thought that this was was aristotle 's view. Thanks.
1: Okay, perfect. So Averroes actually becomes a point of reference in attacks on Aristotelianism. And you take us through in um, part of the first chapter, some of the ways that those attacks were grounded precisely in the nature of Aristotelian teaching on the mortality of the soul. So this issue of the mortality of the soul becomes a real um, kind of flashpoint. And we'll come back to that as we uh, move through the rest of the chapters as well. Now, starting in the 14th century, humanists and scholars outside of universities began criticizing (laughs) Aristotelian thought. And you point to some ways um, or to some kind of major ways that this was happening. Right. One of them was that Aristotelian approaches to learning for these critics are privileging logic over rhetoric and studying nature instead of ethics. And they're also criticizing university men, case okay, so of these non-university guys, for their writing style, for relying on Muslim Arabic writers and also for their impiety. So the chapter takes us through a bunch of examples of this, including Petrarca, Dante, Ficino and others. What are um, one or two or the most important examples of this in in your mind for us to understand um, how they are, they're going to inform the argument to
0: follow yeah so so, so Petrarch offers a, a really or Petrarca is Italian name Petrarch is his name in Latin so he, he used both uh, I think he he offers a starting point and a and a good way to understand a lot of the debate so so one is that he thought that um, that Veroese because it was translated from um, from Arabic into Latin, that he didn't know Latin well, or he didn't know Greek well, and that the language that it had been translated in was very bad, and so that it wasn't like his models for the Latin language, which were Cicero. So this is associated with what he thought was the way that people wrote in universities, which he thought was barbarous and filled with uh, all sorts of uh, of unfelicitous modes of of expression. So Averroes gets... Into a lot of these attacks on universities, one because his Latin is bad. I mean, it's not even his Latin; it's a translator's Latin. And this is this is um, emblematic of universities. Um, And then the, the fact that he is. Is is Muslim is is also used in some of these attacks as well. So here we have the universities who are relying on a Muslim to form theological uh, theological doctrine, and so this this is this is pro- problematic as 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 well. And Petrarch associated this with 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 medicine as as well. Veronese wrote also on on medicine and universities at this time, were interested in training physicians uh, uh, so that he thought that uh, the kinds of Im- impious things that Averroes believed were endorsed wholesale by by these physicians. Now, Petrarch wrote in this, uh, uh, you might say, this very overly rhetorical way, and it's unclear to what extent it represented what people were actually doing, but these kinds of critiques get get echoed uh, not just in the in the 14th century, but throughout the 15th and 16th, and e- even into the 17th century, you'll you'll see um, you'll see um, um, echoes of these arguments. Now, now, ways in a sense, gets um, gets pulled in. Um, to, these, um, to these humanist polemics um, also because of his view about Aristotle. Now, Aristotle, Now, he thought that Aristotle was almost divine in his interpretation of nature. And so humanists then say, well, this is meant that Averroes just followed whatever Aristotle said without thinking And that is kind of a slavish devotee to Aristotle, and this this becomes a critique which is used by 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 numerous humanists um, for the next 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 three centuries, and a lot of them are interested in these historical. Uh, uh, um, interpretations of ancient, ancient thought. They say, well, this, this is really, Averroes didn't have a good under, historical understanding of ancient philosophy. He thought that there was really only Aristotle and Plato, and that these humanists who did discovered all sorts of new ancient texts said, well, no, really there were the Stoics, and they were heavily influential, and in that uh, people such as Cicero weren't particularly even interested in Aristotle, and it's true that in the first centuries um, after Christ, that Aristotle's philosophy was relatively. Um, um, was relatively less influential compared to, say, the Stoics or the Epicureans. So the Humanists uh, begin to use use history also in their in their critiques um, of of Averroes, and in this way they also become critiques of of Aristotle or the or the predominance of Aristotelianism in universities.
1: And this was actually one of the really for me, at least, as a like, relatively idiosyncratic reader, but still, you know, one reason. <laughs> you can use an interest in the craft of the historian and sort of historiography and historical writing and historical methods. Um, and, and the importance of that really throughout this story in different ways was one of the really fascinating things about it. So, well, I'm sure we're going to talk about that more as well. There's a whole chapter that kind of focuses in on that, but it recurs throughout the book. <laughs> So before we get there, um, so you bring us into context where there... So at this point in the story, Aristotelianism continues to dominate at universities in Italy. And it continues to be criticized in humanist discourse around the turn of the 16th century. And you show at the end of this chapter that this actually spreads out from Italy. And this moves us into sort of a story about a growing interest in humanist approaches to Aristotelianism, right? So there's an interest at this point in the story, now we're in chapter three, in a kind of historical understanding of ancient Greek texts, and also a desire to understand something that we might call the literal meaning of Aristotle's writings, even if it doesn't correspond to truths that are sort of philosophical or religious. Okay, so there's a lot going on in this chapter. Right, and we could probably talk about this chapter <laughs> most of the time, but I'm just going to ask you about a couple of things to sort of ground us and move us forward. All right, so there's um, in this chapter and in this part of the story, you talk about an interest in a kind of pure Aristotle. So, with this with this growing interest in literal and historical interpretations of Aristotle comes a kind of growing doubt over the possibility of using his work as a basis of theology. And this is bound up with this kind of search for a pure Aristotle. So can you talk a little bit about this? What does this mean um, for the people who are writing in this period? And what about this is significant for us to understand in order to understand what follows?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so humanism has different different meanings and different influences among among different different groups, and and it influenced the universe. So initially, with with Petrarca, uh the humanism criticized the universities, but uh, the professors in universities began to um, be influenced by humanism and, and adopt some of its ideals. And so, so one of this was one of these ideals was to was to uh, to use to try and figure out what Aristotle really thought. And one of the ways they did this was by using the the ancient Greek commentators. This this corpus uh, that was written beginning in this second century AD. And was continued to be um, to be composed until until roughly the sixth century AD. And um, this was impossible earlier, in part because these works hadn't been translated, and not very many people knew Greek. But increasingly, uh, in universities, uh, students and professors studied Greek, and so they could use these to try and interpret Aristotle using only ancient sources. So. Um, so so this gave a, a very different kind of interpretation of Aristotle that had been created in the medieval univer- university in which Aristotle had been reconciled with Christianity uh, by figures such as Thomas Aquinas. And um, perhaps the, the most important figure in doing this at the, the beginning of the 16th century was a professor named Pietro Pomponazzi who taught at uh, Padua in Bologna. And Pampanacci was an incredibly popular uh, professor. He was paid a very high salary, and he used uh, the commentary of a one of the the, the earliest commentator on, on Aristotle named Alexander of Aphrodisias, um, and um, and that had been there had been new editions of that created in the, in the 15th century. And he used he used this text to come up with a a interpretation of Aristotle that 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 he believed suggested Aristotle did not believe that the soul was immortal. He believed that the, that the soul was linked to sensation, and therefore. Dies when the when the body dies, and he, he said that well this isn't necessarily the truth, but this is what Aristotle thought. So he opened up this possibility that that through Aristotelian philosophical principles you could arrive at opinions about the soul and about other matters that didn't conform to to Christian to Christian dogma. Um, um, so, so, so this, he thought was this pure interpretation of Aristotle that was, um, we might say pure in the sense that it wasn't, um, that it wasn't, uh, influenced, uh, um, by the need to, to reconcile it with Christianity.
1: Awesome. Thank you. And this is great. Cause I was going to ask you about Pampa Nazi. Be- specifically because he really plays a tremendously important role in this story moving forward as well, right? So as, for example, as we move forward, there's an entire chapter on our Italian Aristotelianism after Paul the Nazi that sort of takes this as a fulcrum point to look at transformations in humanism in Italy. Now, with this part of the story, um, again, following from what you just mentioned, scholars are continuing to debate Aristotle's theory of the soul, among other kinds of things, and for many of these debates, Averroes was key either because he was treated as a guide to finding the true opinion of Aristotle or because he was treated as a model of how not to do. (laughs) So the chapter kind of looks at both of these um, and is uh, just one of many, many chapters, really all the chapters do this that are just really, really good at taking um, what, some of us in our kind of uh, very simplistic understandings of uh, Aristotelianism and the history of early modern science and medieval science may have, you know, thought about it as, oh, Averroes is important for these guys, but really showing like the diversity of approaches and how those approaches d- diverge and where they're coming from. And so I really love this chapter. Okay. So can you talk a little bit for us um, so that listeners kind of can understand um, the importance of Averroes at this part of the story? Why did interest in his work grow so much in the 16th century? And what were some of the most important um, ways that that growth took shape for the purpose of the story?
0: So so he became influential, influential because he became a model for finding that pure Aristotle. Because of his such a high opinion of Aristotle and his desire not to mix it with Plato, not to mix it with, in his case, Islamic theology, that became a, a, a an ideal for these 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 figures influenced by. Humanism, who wanted to come up with this pure version of of Aristotle, so it's it's, in a sense it was somewhat unexpected. This 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 target of all of these earlier humanist uh, polemics becomes a model for these pure interpretations of Aristotle because he thought was thought to have the most accurate interpretation now one of the reasons they thought that he had the most accurate interpretation was that he relied on these on these ancient Greek commentators and some of the reception is, is somewhat somewhat mixed some people say well he's the best at understanding Aristotle because he relied on these commentators others uh, accused him of being a, a thief essentially and said well anything that's good in his work is is, is taken from the from the from the commentator Anything that is bad is 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 something that he came up with on 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 his own. So um, so he becomes a model for this pure Aristotle, and then he also becomes um, that 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 in. Also relates to this idea that natural philosophy is, as distinct in its principles from, from theology, which some of the, the people who followed, uh, Pomponazzi's approach, such as Simone Porzio, uh, b- believed was the best m- method for, for looking into nature.
1: Now, there's, of course, going to be a reaction to this, right? And you, and as we move forward into the book, um, we see a bit of a reaction to this. So by the end of the 16th century, Aristotelianism, um, as you put it in Chapter 5 of the book, had divided into two main groups. And both forms were considered legitimate, even though they were at odds with each other. So maybe there was one form that kind of took a path that was like that of Pomponazzi, right? And this is... Mm-hmm. Um, lay university professors and doctors in Italy. And then there's another path that really worried about the moral implications, the morality of natural philosophy. And this is um, emblematized by Jesuits or rather embodied or um, modeled by Jesuits and other religiously minded writers. So we see the establishment of the Jesuit order in roughly the second half of the 16th century and this changes the nature of philosophical education this changes a lot of things about the story. Now they wanted to Jesuits wanted to minimize the influence of Averroes and to promote a vision of Aristotelianism that brought together philosophy and theology and they did it um, in a very particular kind of way that um, kind of has reverberations later on in the story. So can you talk a little bit about that? The, what Jesuit approach um, to Aristotelianism, and what about that was important for shaping what was to come?
0: So the Jesuits uh, were an order that formed with the Council of Trent. So this was the Catholic Church's uh, attempt to reform itself in the light of of Protestant Protestantism, and it began in the 1540s and continued for for nearly nearly 20 years. And the Jesuits um, became were established by them and became, we might say, the intellectual wing of the of the Catholic Church. They establishes Colleges and influenced university teachings throughout throughout the world, and they wanted to bring Aristotelianism back. To Thomas Aquinas' vision of Aristotle. So that made Aristotle subaltern to the- theology. And they had very precise ways that they thought that they could teach this. Well, one of the ways, instead of engaging in polemics against Averroes the way earlier Humus had done, they just wanted to essentially erase his views from, or at least his controversial views, from, from their teaching. Genes and from and from their from their text, and so so this involved um, making sure that all of their professors and, and teachers of of, of of lower level schools were on the same same page about Thomism and eliminating averroes Now they were also willing to use uh, some of the other uh, more uh, semi- non intellectual means of coercion that were available. Uh, uh, to the Catholic Church at this time so they participated in uh, banning books with the index of prohibited books and also in inquisitions at times against against uh, professors who they thought were uh, in, you know, teaching uh, heretical uh, philosophical 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 views so so they have in a sense a, a backwards looking, Position in terms of Aristotelianism, and since they want to reform it by by reestablishing Thomas and the the uh, make theology uh, and and ethics the goal of natural philosophy instead of say in- interpreting what Aristotle um, might have might have truly believed or or what. Um, or what nature might teach us uh, beyond theological considerations.
1: Great. Thank you so much. And in the remainder of that chapter, you also take us through some other approaches to Aristotelian thought that are happening um, at roughly the same time. So I won't um, go into detail with those, but I'll just flag that for listeners who are particularly interested in this broad context. There's a lot more.
0: There's, there's, there's also there's also Protestant reactions to to this, this approach of Pomponazzi and and Averroes, um at the, at the same time so so so, so that it, it's not strictly a a Catholic affair at this point right exactly thank you
1: so as we move forward into the story and we move into the next chapter, we move a little bit later um, into the story. You take us into the emergence of a variety of approaches toward and a kind of a newly varied set of approaches toward Aristotelianism that emerged from a very particular material and historical context. So, more commentaries, as you tell us in this story, um, on Aristotle were written between the beginning of the 16th century and 1650 than in the previous millennium. There are hundreds of editions of Aristotle's works in Greek and, in Greek and Latin being published by printing houses, and at the same time, there become more and more versions of natural philosophy and alternatives to Aristotelianism that start populating the kind of thought landscape that we're talking about.
0: No, exactly. I mean, it's a kind of a contradictory situation in which universities endorse Aristotelianism to, to perhaps even a greater degree than, uh, than before, and at the same time, there are more and more uh, alternatives to that. So, so some of the alternatives that are that arise at the end of the 16th century are Platonism, um, which has its also its roots in the 15th century humanist. Um, but there are, are many uh, new endorsements of Plato's philosophy in part because some people thought that it was more pious than, than Aristotle, that Plato um, unambiguously states that the human soul is is immortal, uh, for example. And there was also the uh, hermetic philosophies that, um, that gained um, more steam throughout the 16th century. So these were philosophies that tried to find the oldest religious truths out there, and they, they associated these with a group of texts that they attributed to Hermes Trismegistus. Now, this attribution was was in, incorrect. Um, that Hermes; these texts originated around the second century AD, not um, not thousands of years before Christ as they thought. But but they were they were texts which they thought that they thought showed the the um, the essential tr- religious truths that were common to all humanity and that these truths were also fairly similar to some 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 Plato, some of Plato's ideas. Um, and frequently these Hermetic authors and these Platonists were also uh, people who came up with completely new forms of natural philosophy, such as Bernardino Telesio, um, said that the reason that this was necessary was because Aristotle was impious. And so they're basing themselves on Pomponazzi's and others' views that Aristotle believed the soul was, was mortal and that the, the world um, um, wasn't, wasn't created by, by God. So that they were accepting Pomponazzi as being correct, but saying, well, this is a good reason for, uh, for going away from Aristotle and trying to find an alternative.
1: Thank you so much. And there's a lot of examples in this chapter of different approaches to this, including um, just a really, what I thought was a really funny uh, kind of satirical
0: mm-hmm. on
1: Aristotle by, is this is name? Ortensio
0: oh, Lando. Ortensio or Lando. So, Ortensio Lando uh, wrote these, these are actually written in the vernacular Italian, and um, he has. Um, Partly, it's based on knowledge of more Greek sources, but it's um, but it's a satirical view of of Aristotle as being. He calls him the most evil person of antiquity or of his of his time, um, and um, and, uh, and and talks about him being a pagan and being in a plot uh, to or, to uh, poison Alexander the Great, and that there's aspersions on Aristotle's uh, sexual orientation as well um, that suggests that he was um, immoral um, or um, or um, in his words the, the most evil person of, of his of his of his time and um, we can talk about this later but this this idea probably has to do with reading more text but it's also a growth of this idea about what paganism was, and that Aristotle was a pagan, and that perhaps that paganism cannot be reconciled with with Christ- Christianity.
1: Actually, that's um, that's great because we're going to get there to this uh, idea of Aristotle as a pagan in a moment. Now to get there. Um... There's again, there's a lot going on that we can just barely scratch the surface of in chapter six. I mean, um, and just to kind of mark this for listeners before we move on, you talk about the emergence of a a much more aggressive approach toward maintaining orthodoxy by Mm public authorities in this context, right? And you sort of um, take us into a context where they're actually. Ecclesiastical authorities begin endorsing a kind of Aristotelianism that supports the idea of natural philosophy as a sort of handmaiden to theology, and that strengthens institutional support for medieval forms of Aristotelianism, which is important to this story and sort of moving us forward because this creates, as you argue, I think, very compellingly here, an environment that encourages getting more precise control over the interpretation of Aristotle. This issue of precision and control over interpretation, I think, is, it kind of leads us into the focus of the next part of this story, where we look at the importance of historical methodologies in creating different sorts of ways of interpreting Aristotle that wind up having really important ramifications. So so at the turn of the 17th century, there's a reorientation, as you tell us here, toward more sophisticated ways of bringing history, historical practices, the craft of the historian and its various instantiations to bear on the practice of interpreting Aristotle. So you point to at least a couple of ways in which this is true. There's an interest in more accurate versions of Aristotle's biography. Mm-hmm. also an interest in situating him within a larger historical context. Um, and, and this happens in a couple of different ways. So can you, um, because this is such an important part of the story... Can you talk about this, and any elements of this that you find particularly important? Namely, how did this spread of historical studies change and shape approaches to reading and criticizing Aristotle and Aristotelians?
0: Well, one, of the, one of the ways it had to do, particularly with the use of history to understand religion. So... Um, just as the Greek commentators became more important for interpreting, interpreting Aristotle, the Greek patristic authors, and as well as some Latin ones, became more important for interpreting Christianity in the course of the 16th century. So this is comes out of in part from Erasmus and this idea for a humanist Christianity based on ancient sources. Now, a lot of these ancient sources did not have a particularly favorable view to Aristotle, that they preferred... Platonism or um, or other kinds of, of, of natural, natural, natural philosophy, so these were ancient religious sources that that, that suggested that Aristotle where it was problematic for religion, and their antiquity meant for many that they had more authority the, the very sort of common attitude during the Renaissance is the older something was, the more authoritative it, it was. So that beca- that's one of the ways that history became um, became important. A second way was a greater understanding of the Middle Ages. So um, th- that people began to do histories of the Middle Ages, and in doing these histories, they 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 learned that Aristotle was condemned in the 13th century, and um, um, they didn't know about the famed condemnations of 1277, but they knew about earlier ones in 12, 1210 and twelve thirty two. So so thinkers such as uh, Tommaso Campanella and um and Lonoy said, well, these condemnations show that Aristotle hadn't always been part of the church's tradition. And those um, those that sort of tightening of of dogma that you pointed to um, just a minute ago was uh, was a novelty it doesn't didn't necessarily reflect uh, reflect the the, the church's tr- traditions um, now this, this the historical research though was was oftentimes a tool so that um, that uh, probably um, as historians we need to remind ourselves that uh, that historical analysis relates to 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 larger context this was true also in the 17th century so the there's also people who wanted to endorse the the Thomistic version of Aristotle um, by saying, "Well, the Church Fathers actually didn't understand Aristotle well; that they were they were they they were uh, corrupted by Alexander of Aphrodisias's interpretation, and they didn't know the actu- actual tra- actual actual view." So that there are some of these Jesuits and other kinds of scholars who also use historical research to try to promote to promote. Their view, but I I think in the in the long term, the view that Aristotle was a pagan, um, that that uh, um, his his life wasn't led according to 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 Christian principles. um, There's a a story that's repeated over and over again about uh, his um, his his. Becoming a philosopher because he was instructed by the oracle at Pythia. This was this was something that was mentioned over and over again to suggest that uh, Aristotle's knowledge of nature was perhaps. Uh, not only pagan, but also demonic in nature. That uh, that the oracle itself was or was was controlled by demons, and that Aristotle gained his knowledge uh, through uh, demon, demonic powers. Um, um, paganism was often associated with um, with with those kinds of practices at this time.
1: In fact, you um, later in this chapter you point to a, a particular genre of sex writing associates Aristotle with atheism?
0: Yeah. So so so. Um, um, so, so again this, this also derives from seeing Pomponazzi as, as being correct and seeing Pomponazzi as a source of atheism and this is a sort of a new interpretation of Pomponazzi uh, Pomponazzi during his life there were scandals but he was never actually condemned as a heretic and had lots of supporters within the church by the 17th century he's seen to be the source of all sorts of kinds of, of, of heresies of atheism atheisms, of thinking that God isn't powerful, um, and in part he's, he's associated with Machiavelli, um, which is I think a, a novel historical interpretation that comes from the 17th century, and also with um, with some of these um, Outspoken um, critics of of of, of Christianity. Um, now, at the same time, there's also people who want to defend Pomponazzi using historical historical methods um, and trying to say that the 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 Jesuits' interpretation of Aristotle aren't you know, is, is inaccurate. Their understanding of of the Church's history is is is, in, is inaccurate. So um, history becomes a tool for, for all sides. And um, depending on which sources are chosen or techniques used, uh, different results um, were, were obtained.
1: Thank you. Now, as we move to the last um, chapters of the book, we move into a circumstance where you bring us into the new sciences, religion, And struggle over Aristotle. And this is the focus of chapter eight. Now in the 17th century, as you show us here, the impiety of Aristotle, right? This is a a quite Mm -hmm. different way of understanding Aristotle than we um, that we met at the beginning of the book. Uh, And at this point, I think the reader can start to understand why piety or impiety is such a central part of interpretations of Aristotle throughout this story. So by the 17th century, Aristotle's impiety was frequently cited as a reason to seek, as you put it here, new and different forms of natural philosophy. And related to this, you mentioned that uh, kind of the more people were researching the biography of Aristotle to kind of link back to what we were just talking about and sort of historical interest in Aristotle as a person and his biography as a kind of historical um, source of information the more this was researched, the more they spread negative views about him as a person. So there are these sort of searches for different kinds of natural philosophy. And you take us into two different landscapes where this is playing out and playing out um, differently in both of these cases. Now, the first landscape that you bring us into is England. At this point, England's religious landscape as you put it here, was inspiring new ways to think about natural philosophy and also new fears about Aristotelianism. So can you talk a little bit about that? What are some of the most important ways that concerns with sort of religious concerns about
0: Aristotle
1: were shaping these issues in England?
0: So, so two of the biggest, um, religious, might say, concerns or even enemies that were found in England were anti-Trinitarianism on the one hand, and on the other hand, Catholicism. Now, the, as we, we talked, we mentioned earlier that, that I see Aristotelianism as forming these two camps. One we might think of as being like Pomponazzi, um, which denies, it says Aristotle didn't believe in the immortality of the soul. And the other camp is more like the Jesuits, um, who want to make Aristotle part of Catholicism. Now, those two camps of Aristotelianism, um, could were where they were matched with these two religious fears. So the Pompanazi's um view of Aristotle was often linked to this anti Trinitarianism, that it was a, a denial of, of God's power um and and um and um God's ability to control the world. Whereas the Jesuits uh, view of, of, of Aristotle was linked to Catholicism in which philosophy isn't a search for truth, but rather it's a, a, a a tool that, that Catholics use to, uh, to justify, justify their, their, their doctrines. Um, So, so, in both of these cases, Aristotelianism, whether you point to the anti-Trinitarianism or to the Catholics, there's a version of Aristotelianism that could be condemned that was associated with it.
1: Great. So who you mentioned Bacon as one example here, but who are some of the other most important people, um, perhaps including Bacon, um, who are involved in this?
0: so 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 bacon thinks that aristotle is is mistaken because he thinks he replaces um God with nature, so that's 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 um in a sense a kind of a, a making Aristotle a kind of anti anti trinitarian or um or something along those lines. Hobbes, on the other hand thomas hobbes the the famed author of Leviathan, associated aristotelian and with these Catholics and thought that Aristotelians come up with uh, all sorts of, of different um, elaborate arguments to invent uh, uh, non non corporeal substances, and um, and and these these views get endorsed by many of the figures in the um, in the uh, the Royal Society, this new um, this new institution for doing um, experiments on on science, and is also found in, in the ideas of, of Robert Boyle. Uh, Robert Boyle seems to have from an early age been very upset. By Aristotelianism, because he thought that it was very similar to um, to atheism or anti-Trinitarianism, and in this, particularly, he had uh, in mind the kind of Aristotelianism of Pomponazzi, whom whom he cites he cites by name. And so, this seems to be a preoccupation of Boyle's throughout his life, um, from his earliest writings to to even his his latest writings. He repeatedly uses that as a as a justification for coming up with a new kind of natural philosophy, which he thought would restore God's providence um, and explain how how God, um, God God controls controls the world. So he came up with, with often referred to as the mechanical philosophy and he thought this was a more pious alternative to Aristotle.
1: So we're already getting a sense. If um, listeners will remember back to the beginning of our conversation, um, that there's all that there's a clear revision at work here of how we understand the turn away from Aristotelianism in the history of science. And just to remind us, at the beginning, we talked about the fact that the book was very much um, responding to prevailing interpretations of this turn away from Aristotelianism that located that turn in like institutional issues and issues about sort of ideas, um, metaphysical ideas. And really, I, I hope it's clear to listeners that we're already seeing how um, you're showing us through this book the importance of religious arguments specifically. And this is, a, I, I think, a really, really important um, reorientation to how we understand this phenomenon in this period. But, sorry, go ahead.
0: No, 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 yeah, thank you. Um, And and it's not so much that that there weren't other reasons to reject Aristotle, such as the cosmology or new experimental practices, but but this is. But I want to add a a, a sort of a a third motive, and I really believe that this motive of religion was, was very was very deep um and and that was was something that spurred a number of these innovators to to come up with um, new kinds of natural philosophy
1: so you've already talked a little bit about how this is playing mm-hmm. out in England. What were some of the ways that this was happening outside of england
0: so so I'll take france as 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 sort of like the Counter example to England, although it's it's somewhat similar, but the the terms have have changed. Now, the French universities had uh, repeatedly throughout the 17th century had banned the teaching of D- of Descartes' philo- philosophy, and they mandated uh, teaching Aristotle. And so this was, um, and this this also happened in in the, in the Netherlands, and so so. In, in the case of France, this meant that the, the probably the Jesuits had controlled the universities, and they also had um, the ear of the French Parliament to to try and make laws about what kinds of philosophy should 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 be taught. Now, so this meant that. People who followed Descartes, or who followed um, the teachings of Pierre Gassendi. Gassendi was was a um, somebody who wanted to revive atomism uh, in a way that he thought could fit with Christianity and provide a, a more um, a more pious alternative to Aristotelianism. That um, their followers and also um, Jans, Jansenists who, um, who were who. Were the Jesuit interpretation of, of religion that that they that, that they in a sense fought against um, this institu- institutionalization of Aristotle in the French universities, and they did this by using lots of the same tactics that we've talked about before: Aristotle's biography, um, by by emphasizing that um, that. Um, there should be the liberty to 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 philosophize. Um, that this was something that um, that what that was Christian in its in, in its na- in its nature. Um, and they associated Averroes, even though this is a, one of these kinds of paradoxes, even though the Jesuits could not stand Averroes, they associated Averroes with eliminating the philosophy, the the liberty to philosophize, because they thought that Averroes believed whatever Aristotle said and so that meant that you couldn't look for new new alternatives well these Cartesians and Cascindists and Jansenists um, so use these kinds of techniques and and, and and satire as well to to say that Aristotle was was impious and that he um, believed in all sorts of things that couldn't be couldn't be uh, that couldn't fit in with um, with 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 Christian Christian philosophy. Great.
1: Thank you so much, Craig. Now, we don't um, have too much time. Um, There's there's a lot that's happening after this, even um, in this last part of the chapter and in the conclusion, but I want to just signal and talk a little bit about some of the important moves you're making in the conclusion as a way to bring us all together. Now, in the conclusion, as you move us um, into the end of the story, this story winds up Um, or we start as, as readers to realize that the story has been and then continues to be interwoven with this really interesting strand of a history of atheism, sort of notions of atheism, conceptions of atheism, changing definitions of what that is. And the conclusion like looks at really transformations in the idea of what atheism is and the way that this gets interwoven with reactions to Aristotelianism and Aristotle. and This is perhaps most notably um, embodied in the work of Pierre Bale, but you talk about other contexts as well. Did you want to talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, so, so atheism as, as a term during the early modern period was, was very broad. And at times it could just be used to refer to people who were, were heretics. And didn't involve an actual denial of divinity. Now there are examples of people using the term atheist to refer to people who uh, denied the existence of of, of, of divinity, and um, and so some of the some of these 16th century polemicists um, such as. Um, um, uh, uh, Pietrus Ramus did, did so. Now, what happens in, in Bale is a so so. Pierre Bale was he wrote a fame defense of the possibility of an ethical atheist, saying that it is possible to be to be an atheist and also to be a, to be a good. Person, so this this in a sense goes against what the Jesuits were arguing about natural philosophy that you couldn't believe that the soul was um, that the soul is mortal and also be a, a good person that believing that undermines uh, ethics and, um, and 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 Bale uses Aristotelianism uh, in looking at these 16th century thinkers as as a as as a way of, uh, of promoting his own arguments uh, about. About atheism and also about philosophical liberty. So he points to Pietro Pomponazzi as somebody who um, as gives a, gives a good example of somebody who thought that you could be ethical um, just by being, because virtue itself was its was its own reward, and you didn't need to believe in reward or it's in the in the afterlife. Um, and uh, and he also fits in with these with these debates that were going on in France and the Netherlands that banned other kinds of thought, uh, such as Cartesianism. And he says, "Well, isn't it strange that um, that you that you're forced to follow Aristotle, who, who seems to have been a pagan and made sacrifices to the to the or." and and so forth and many interpreters have seen him as believing in all sorts of things that go against Christianity whereas Descartes who tried to prove the existence of God um, is banned from, from, from being taught in universities and, and in this sense he makes this rhetorical argument about how could it be that Cartesianism is worse than, than Aristotelianism. Descartes was Christian um, and tried to support Christianity, bail Argue. Now, Bill also ties in these interpretations of Aristotelianism to uh, Benedictus um, Spinoza. And, and this he has a very, you might say, a, a um, I say most scholars probably think he has a very odd interpretation of Spinoza, but he thinks that Spinoza's pantheism was anticipated by a number of the 16th century Aristotelians, and that they put forth a, a kind of pantheism uh, that was very similar to Spinoza's. So in this way, he associates Aristotelianism with the Spinoza, which 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 many which which many people at this time thought was the starting point for a kind of naturalistic athe- atheism. Um, now, B- Bale was also very influential That um, in the course of the 18th century. Many of the thinkers that we might associate with the Enlightenment uh, Red Bale, uh, and um, and it's clear in the in the great uh, encyclopedie of Diderot and D'Alembert that the that the passage on Aristotle was probably influenced by by Bale, or at least um, at least thinking that was similar to Bale. And in the encyclopedie, they write um, an article written by Claude Yvonne that that um, that reading Aristotle leads to atheism even even if Aristotle was not an atheist himself, of course, according to this this their interpretation, probably Aristotle was was a pagan and perhaps uh, sacrificed to uh, uh, to pagan gods.
1: So, Craig, this um, this has been a fascinating hour for me, Um, and there's a ton of material. Now, even though we're now at the conclusion, there's a ton of material that we didn't have a chance to talk about. It's an extraordinarily rich book with a lot of details, and actually some pretty funny stories um, in those details that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Now, is there any, given that, is there anything in particular um, that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners?
0: um well, th- well thank you um for for um all these great great questions and um i, I you you've been very thorough but I, maybe if, if sort of just one um, um, sort of last point that i that I could make is that um it, it, it is the is the importance of, of, of history for natural 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 philosophy during this time period in in one that so much of what they were doing was about interpreting past thinkers and so that the practice of doing natural philosophy was tied in with visions of history and then the second part is that lots of the evidence for natural philosophy derived from understanding the past because they were interested in uh, miracles or what could be called miracles and so that involved going back and trying to understand what these events were were and were in the past. And so that a lot of the transformation of thought that we see over the course of these of these centuries is is not just a transformation of thinking about nature but a transformation about how people understood the past.
1: Fantastic, and I think that's a perfect place to to move from this one to the next project. So now that the book is um, out and done, and congratulations again. Um, what's next for you? Is anything inspiring you right now? Oh,
0: well, yeah, I've I've, uh, I've started on my on my next project, and my next project is is it goes back in part more to my first book, and I mean in, uh, I'm interested in trying to figure out how people understood the wind during the early modern period. And and, um, Francis Bacon wrote A Natural History of the Wind, and I want to use that text as a try to understand what, what did people think about the wind beforehand and afterwards, and explain how people understood wind to in a global fashion so this is one of the sort of the big movements of the 17th century and one of the perhaps ways that we might think about science today is that science is global in its in its outlook and this this one of the earliest ways that i think this emerged was trying to understand how the winds were a global global fashion and so they were were global phenomenon these these changes occurred in the sixteenth and the seventeenth century. So I've just started working on on this on this project, and um, I'll be working all next year uh, at the Folger Library uh, on on this project. And um, and I hope that it um, that it that it can uh, result in, a, in 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 a, in another book.
1: Well, have a great time at the Folger, beautiful, amazing place. And when that book is done, let me know, and we'll talk about wins.
0: <laughs> all right thank you so thank you so much thank
1: you it's really been a pleasure thank you so much for, for making the time
0: <laughs> Bye-bye.
1: you've been listening to new books in science technology and society thanks very much for joining us and see you next time